This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Cassie McCullough and welcome to Best of the Festivals. Today we hear from Julian Barnes, author of 13 novels including Flaubert's Parrot, The Noise of Time and the Booker-winning A Sense of an Ending. His latest novel, Elizabeth Finch, is about a fictional life-changing teacher. And at the Sydney Writers' Festival, he's talking with RN's Claire Nichols. We'll hear about the influence of teachers on his life and what he's learned in a career that spanned more than four decades. Hello. Hello. Your new book is called Elizabeth Finch. It's about an incredible teacher, and you, Julian Barnes, were raised by teachers. Can you tell me a bit about your mum and dad? Um, yes, I come, I come from several generations of teachers. My, my great-grandfather was a village headmaster. Um, my maternal grandparents were both teachers. My parents were both teachers. Um, my, my brother uh, is an ancient philosopher, um, ancient in both senses of the word. Um, and, um, and so I, 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 I did grow up in a house where my parents would, you know, do the marking and, and put the red crosses and ticks uh, on the essays and so on. Um, but I'd say two things. One was that they weren't, they, they were, uh, this is, I was growing up, I was born in 1946, I was growing up in the fifties really. Um, they, they were liberal for their time. They expected you to work hard uh, and study hard, but uh, they were never um, oppressive or brutal in their expectations. And so I didn't feel, I, you know, it's, it's like <laughs> you, you just assume that your parents are normality. You know, however abnormal they might subsequently turn out to be, they will seem to the person involved, the child, to be normal. Um, I think the only effect it's had on me uh, as a person, and especially as a writer, is that it's made the, me the opposite of a school teacher. I'm not a didactic writer. I don't try and tell you how to live or what's right and what's wrong. I, t- I try to tell stories which set out various um, problems, hypotheses, um, moral questions and and I'm not saying this is this is this is right this is wrong this is how you should behave I'm saying what do you think about I mean I don't see when I think of the me the writer and you the reader I don't think I'm on some sort of high dais on a throne I think where my image of it is always that we're sitting side by side outside say a cafe and we're looking across to the other side of the road, and um, and we're looking at the people who go past, and I'm sort of saying to you, what do you think those two are up to? Hmm, and do you think they're married? Hmm, that, mm, what's going on there? And and and, and sort of heart- listening to your response at the same time as I'm making these suggestions about what we're both looking at. I, I am interested in what it was like to grow up in the Barnes household. You know, you've got these teacher parents, and of course, you became a novelist and your brother became a philosopher. Was it a household where big ideas were discussed at the kitchen table? 
Not at all. No, it's have you have you, have you got your lunch? <laughs> have you done your homework? Um, have you changed your underpants? Things like that. I mean, we didn't. It was it was not um, it was not it wasn't a place where ideas were discussed. I mean, the thing about Englishness is a lot of it is transmitted and beliefs and uh, are, are sort of assumed rather than uh, discussed. I mean, you know the classic three things that weren't discussed in my childhood were uh, religion, sex, and politics. Um, I didn't know how my parents voted till I was in my 20s, probably. And we, we certainly didn't discuss politics apart from, you know, listening to the radio and my, uh, my mother every so often saying stupid fool when <laughs> someone on the left was talking. <laughs> um, so uh, it was also, you know, it was an, I'm one of the last sort of generation of children who didn't have television until they were about 10 or 11. And then it came in and then it was... It was a, it was a, we bought it second hand. It was enormous. It looked like a wardrobe and it had double doors which closed and opened. And so there was always a ceremony of when we actually watched it. And we watched very little of it, I realize now, compared to people with their, their tablets and iPhones and so on. So yes, books were, books were at home. There were lots of books at home and books were respected, but, um, it wasn't as if, there was an expectation that you might write a book yourself. I mean, that's the thing about writing. Um, I mean, Martin Amis once said, it's not as if you were a butcher because your dad was a butcher. Though, of course, in his case, he was a writer because his father was a writer. <laughs> but that's very rare. Normally, you, you become a writer by not being the child of a writer, by finding your excitement in books, by finding the fact that they describe life uh, accurately in ways that other authorities, including your parents, don't describe life. Um, so it's a process, well, it was a process for me, about of, of thinking or, first of all, thinking that reading was the great, contained the great explanations of life. Um, and then thinking that, trying to imagine that I could do it myself. I mean, I, my first book came out when I was 34, which in itself shows that I had, um, well, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily show this, but it, it, it was the case that I had a great lack of confidence. You know, you spend your time at school and university reading the, all the world's great classics, and then you come along and you think, well, I'm writing a novel. And and the voice in the back of the head says, oh, yeah, you and who else? I mean, who's <laughs> you've just been reading... Shakespeare, Flaubert, Nathaniel Hawthorne, etc., etc. What what makes you think you can add to the pile of literary knowledge and literary application that's gone on for centuries before you? So you have to you have to get round that question first of all. Um, but uh, I, I I look back on my childhood as as being safe as much as anything else. I mean. Uh, I, I, I have both um, both positive and sort of negative feelings about it. I mean, the ne by negative, I mean they didn't do me any harm. <laughs> Did, you Did you need some harm? Did you need some harm? Did I need some harm? Well, I was thinking of sort of you know psychological harm rather than no, they never beat me. No, 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 no. I was beaten at school, but I wasn't ever beaten by my parents. What did your parents make of you becoming a novelist? Well, I was, I was sort of 
lots of things before I became a novelist. Um, they, uh, again, my first novel when I was 34, as I said, um, and there was a sort of stunning silence for several weeks. And um, then uh, I was going down for lunch. They lived about um, 50 miles outside London. And, and I thought, oh, God, what's going to happen now? And um, eventually the subject was brought up. Uh, and I think it was brought up in this way. My mother suggested that I drive my father to uh, do some shopping. And this is so English. He was able to talk to me about my novel while I had my eyes on the road so that we didn't have to, we couldn't make eye contact. We couldn't face one another directly. Um, and he, he said something like, um, uh, we thought it was a good first effort. Um, mind you, um, the language was a bit lower deck. Um, a, phrase, a phrase from his time in the armed forces in the Second World War. Um, and I thought that was, that was as good as you could expect, you know. Um, and then I published one more novel and two pseudonymous thrillers, which I advised them not to read. Uh, so naturally, uh, they, they, they thought they had a look at them, and, uh, but didn't like them. And then I published Fervis Parrot. And um, I was, it came out in something like September or October. And, and the next month, it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And I think that was the moment when, and my photograph with the other shortlisted candidates was on the front page of the Times, the London Times. And I think that was the moment where my parents thought, oh, yes, well, you know, he may write some mucky stuff, but he seems to be accepted. <laughs> <laughs> so all you've got to do is be shortlisted uh, for the booker and then mum and dad will be <laughs> proud of you. Yeah, it's a tip I pass on to any future <laughs> writers in the audience. Noting that down. Uh, your book, as I said, Elizabeth Finch, about this life-changing teacher, what for you, Julian, makes for an incredible teacher? Oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I ever had one. I mean, there are some writers like my, my old friend Ian McEwan, who is absolutely um, reorientated uh, t towards the interests which then led him to become a novelist by a teacher uh, who, an English teacher, who sort of sorted him out and made him concentrate. And, and, and he stayed in touch with him um, all through his life and he the guy died uh, i think he was about 100 only only quite recently and in fact i've just been reading the proof of, of ian's new novel called lessons and he puts the he puts the teacher into the novel um and apparently the teacher insisted on on using his own name using his proper name which is a lovely tribute and then it says at the back alas he died but uh, you know he insisted on on using his own name um i had teachers of, you know, across the, the spectrum, you know, teachers are very various. Um, I mean, I taught myself in a Catholic school for a year in France, mm. and, I, and I saw a great disparity of human behavior, even amongst the priests. Uh, I had lazy teachers, I had pig ignorant teachers, I had clever teachers, I had funny teachers, I had frightening teachers, you know, it's the, the usual array. Um, I had an English master when I was 15. It was in the, what was the first year, sixth form. And he was, he was very uh, remarkable. He'd just come down from Cambridge, so we had him fresh. You know, he hadn't got disillusioned by teaching. Um, 
and he would do he would do things like um, talk about Kirk Douglas's performance in Spartacus, which had just come out. And we thought, wow, I didn't know teachers were allowed to talk about the movies. Um, and then he he would do things like when he was teaching us T.S. Eliot, he'd go to the blackboard and he'd write, birth and copulation and death. And he turned around and said, those are the three things that life consists of, um, which, of course, depressed us all um, amazingly. It didn't even sound, copulation didn't even sound much fun. You know, it's a horrible <laughs> word, isn't it? Um, and then you get death. You get, you know, you're born, you get a bit of copulation, then you die. Uh, a bleak vision Mr. Elliot had, as far as we could understand, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but he did... I think the fact that he, he, he didn't just have a textbook in front of us and we worked through it, and he, he sort of made, a, made contact with, <clears throat> with, with real life, the words on the page related to um, and should inform our understanding of uh, the, the life that we were living. Um, but, he, you know, even so, I didn't, I didn't go to university to read English. I, it wasn't that sort of... He didn't have that sort of impression on me. I went and read modern languages. But, you know, you're lucky if you get one. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Elizabeth Finch. Who is she? Mm. Who is she? Well, when we meet her, uh, it's sort of the 1980s in London, and she is probably in her early 50s. She teaches uh, an evening class in culture and civilization at some offshoot of what we presumed to be London University. And she has uh, a particular manner of teaching, which is, um, it's not, again, it's not didactic. It's, it's sort of provocative. Um, she doesn't say things like, Goethe said that. And then, then everyone thinks, oh God, Goethe said that, that must be right. Um, she says things like a very famous writer uh, who was dying in his 82nd year, remarked that he had only uh, experienced one quarter of an hour of happiness in his entire life. Um, and, that, uh, and so the notion is, you're, that's the given. That's the, that's the information you're given. And you don't think who, who was saying it. So you don't have to think, oh, Goethe, I don't remember who he was. Did he, oh, did he write, did he write play? Was he, was he a poet? Can't remember. You know, you, you get the nugget of that she wants you to discuss. She, she has a very, she doesn't lecture from notes. She's, it's all in her head. Um, but lecture isn't quite the right word because it's more conversational. And yet her conversation is very precise. She, um, she talks as she writes. That's to say you, you hear the punctuation. And there are some people who are like that. They're rare. But um, they do exist. Maybe now's the time to read a little bit from the book, Julian, because, as you say, she does have this very distinct, clear way of talking. Yes. So yes. Let's, let's, pick, yes. let's go to page this... six of the book where Neil's remembering what Elizabeth was like in the lecture theatre. In my mind's eye, my memory's eye, the only place I can see her, she is standing before us preternaturally still. She had none of those lecturers' ticks and tricks designed to charm, distract, or indicate character. She never waved her arms about or supported her chin in her hand. She might occasionally put a slide up to illustrate a point, but that was mostly unnecessary. 
she commanded attention by her stillness and her voice. It was a calm, clear voice, enriched by decades of smoking. She wasn't one of those teachers who only engaged with their students when they looked up from their notes, because, as I said, she didn't lecture from notes. It was all in her head, fully thought out, fully processed. This also compelled attention, reducing the gap between her and us. Her diction was formal, her sentence structure entirely grammatical. Indeed, you could almost hear the commas, semicolons and full stops. She never started a sentence without knowing how and when it would end. Yet she never sounded like a talking book. Her vocabulary was drawn from the same word box she used for both writing and general conversation. And yet the effect wasn't archaic in any way. It was intensely alive. That was Julian Barnes reading from his latest novel, Elizabeth Finch. This is Best of the Festivals on RN Summer and Barnes is in conversation with Claire Nichols at this year's Sydney Writers' Festival about a remarkable but fictional teacher. Next, Barnes expands on the startling influence the fictional Elizabeth has on her students. She's a woman who is sort of out of her time but not old-fashioned. It's a mistake to think that she's old-fashioned. As he says, at one point, Neil, who is sort of half in love with her, if not more, um, he says, you know, there was something about her that resembled, you know, an aged goddess. Yes, I know what I'm saying, he goes on. Um, and there's something about her which is, uh, well, it ta- she, she, she takes the longer view, and it's often sometimes a very long view, She teaches them about, for example, early Christianity, um, the end of the Roman Empire, or the end of Christianity in the Roman Empire, the end of paganism, uh, representations of religion, famous pictures. And she, she she never imposes anything on them. And she says, and this is a a line which I I remember thinking myself when I was taught for a, 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 sem- a semester in America, in Baltimore, Hopkins University, I realised very early on that I wouldn't be... I was teaching creative writing, and there were about 10 students. They're all very intelligent. They're all very different. And I very quickly realised that I wouldn't be the best teacher for all of them, that for some I would be, I would be a person who could see exactly what they wanted to do, who could help them, who could give them, you know show them shortcuts and things like that. And then there was some, like, it was a very charming boy who didn't wrote nothing but Gen X stories. And somehow I was the wrong target audience for that. Um, and then there was another boy who, who when anyone criticised any of his work uh, in the class, he put his fingers together like a gun and pointed them at the, at the critic. Um, which was a bit unnerving, um, <laughs> though it would be even more unnerving now, I think, because you think he probably does have a gun in his back pocket. Um, no, uh, I, so I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed the stints of teaching. I, I did I, also in France, in Brittany, and in, a, in, a, in a, an entire abbey full of, full, of, full of priests. That was great fun. They were very nice to me as well, <laughs> on the whole, yes. They didn't... Um, well, the thing is, the two troubles. What, what, this was in 60, 1965, six, and um, I mean, the, the British and the French have a 
rather traditional views of one another. And occasionally I would, there was a very old canon who was sort of, um, had, had funny octagonal hats and he was, he was very benign. But every time I passed him on the stairs, he would say, ah, la perfide Albion, perfidious Albion, um, which is their phrase for us. Um, and then there was, there was one priest who was very worried that I'd, I, that I'd never been baptized or christened or uh, brought into the church. Um, and he was very worried about the state of my soul. And I said, well, you know, I'm only 21. Maybe I'll worry about that a bit later, which he thought was frivolous, uh, as indeed it was. And then <laughs> some, some months later, he sat next to me very confidentially. And he said, you know, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't have got into all this, meaning the priesthood, uh, if I didn't think there was heaven at the end. And I thought, oh, what an, what an amazingly practical view of religion. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come back to um, Elizabeth Finch and where she comes from, because I understand this was partly inspired by a friend of yours, the novelist and fellow Booker winner, Anita Bruckner. Can you tell me a little bit about your friendship with Anita? Yes, I first met Anita Bruckner when she defeated me for the Booker Prize in 1984, which she won with a Hotel du Lac. And, and I naturally thought I should have won it, but then everyone else always thinks that. Um, and uh, despite that, we, we got on terribly well. She was very... Our relation, I, I suppose I saw her one, maybe twice a year, in, but they're in very sort of controlled circumstances which I borrowed for Elizabeth Finch. There was a couple of things I borrowed from Anita. Um, and she we, we would have lunch, and she would always pay. And um, she would always be there when I arrived. Uh, however early I arrived, she was always there, with cigarette on. And the lunches would usually last an hour and a quarter and no longer, and then she would call for the bill. Uh, so she was, uh, she was, she was in some ways controlling, but she was great fun. She was a very witty woman, uh, as well as a highly intelligent novelist. And when I was thinking about this novel, she was sort of there in the beginning as a kind of moral template. I thought I want someone, I want a, a woman of, of, of high seriousness, of European intelligence, who is quite different and yet inspiring. And I there's one there's there's just one incident which I um put straight into the book because I couldn't resist it, which is we're having we're having lunch one day and we're having different things. And she sort of reached her hand across the table, halfway across the table, and she peered at my plate and she said, How is that? Disappointing? <laughs> With great sort of glee, you know. She was hoping that it that my food was filthy. It was very funny and very typical of her. Uh, and, and I put that in. But um, Elizabeth Finch is, has quite different interests from Anita Bruckner. And, and um, I suppose you, I could put it this way. I once, saw, I once saw a famous actor interviewed on television. <clears throat> and they, was, they asked the usual question, you know, how, how do you build the character? And he replied... I always start with the shoes. Once I've got the shoes right, then I can start building the character. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and, and, and I suppose I used Anita Bruckner's shoes 
and I put Elizabeth Finch into them, and then she walked off in a different direction. <laughs> um, I mean, it isn't, you know, the book isn't about Anita Bruckner, um, let alone a Roman a Clay or anything like that. Um, I sent it to my old friend, uh, the Australian writer Murray Bale, who knew Anita very well. He knew it probably as well as I did. I mean, better than me, probably. And, um, and he sent me a few notes back and said, yes, just a faint whiff of Anita. And I think that's, that's her presence in the book is a faint whiff. OK. Our book starts out as this portrait of Elizabeth Finch and her impact on our narrator, Neil. Then on page 73, Julian, the book shifts. What, what happens? <laughs> well, we then come across a character called Julian the Apostate, um, who has been referred to by uh, Elizabeth Finch. Elizabeth Finch leads us towards him. And this is a non-fiction part of the book. I mean, in my previous novels from Shrovez Parrot onwards, I've often used non-fiction as well as fiction. Uh, in this, you know, I don't make a huge distinction between them. I like to indicate what is fiction and what is non-fiction in the book. But uh, I go where the story is. I go where the interesting story lies, whether it's fiction or non-fiction. So I'm, uh, I'm a sort of maybe a, I'm a literary outcast, to use Flaubert's <laughs> word again, um, in that respect. Um, Julian the Apostate uh, was the last pagan emperor of Rome. Um, Constantine introduced Christianity, and for a few dozen years, a few score years, um, the Roman emperors were Christian. Um, during the apostate was brought up a Christian, but always secretly believed in the old pagan gods in the Hellenistic vision of the world. And when he came to the throne in 362 AD, uh, he, he announced his paganism. He says, uh, I, I'm not a Christian. Uh, on the other hand, I, I acknowledge that there are Christians and I acknowledge that they have a different God from me. So he was a, he was a tolerant emperor. Uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't promote Christianity, but he accepted it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, perhaps for the course of Western civilization, he was only emperor for 18 months and he was, um, he was killed in the Persian desert by a Persian uh, spear or lance um you know rule is rule in the ancient world is never invade persia always a bad idea alexander the great he should have learned from that <laughs> and modern equivalent is never go into afghanistan um i remember when uh, i was with an american friend when the americans were just about to invade i said don't do it whatever you do don't go into Afghanistan. We, the British, went in three times. We had three wars in Afghanistan. We lost all of them. You've just seen the Soviets go in, and they got a bloody nose as well. Don't go into Afghanistan. No, no, we'll be able to sort it, he said. Mm. Aha. Um, <laughs> not that we think Afghanistan has turned out well in the end either. Um, but still, so he was, um, he was, he was, this is the story. This is the story. He was, he was, as he lay dying on the battlefield, he put his hand to his chest, he grabbed a handful of blood, he threw it into the air, and he, he cried out, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. Now, the pale, pale Galilean is Jesus Christ, and this remark is taken as uh, 
an admission not just of military defeat, but of theological defeat, and that from then on, uh, the Roman Empire and its successors would be Christian. Um, and I, I came across it first in a poem by the English poet Swinburne, 19th century, late 19th century, Swinburne, thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. And I'd never been interested in Swinburne's poetry, and at first I didn't know what it related to, because he didn't, there's nothing in the poem, the poem's called Hymn to Proserpine, Proserpine being the, the goddess, the protectress goddess of Rome, who was then replaced by, um, by Mary, a mother of God, who is still the protectress of Rome. And Swinburne's attitude to this was that this was a terrible moment in Western civilization, um, that the ancient Hellenistic beliefs were that life was the, the only place where light and joy could be had. And that when we die, we went, we go to a, some sort of vaguely drifting place, but you know, with no specific um, story to it. Um, whereas then the Christians came along, and the Christians introduced guilt and shame and pain. And their view was that this, the world was a terrible, terribly um, gloomy place, sad and sinister, and that the only um, the only joy and light and happiness to be had was after we died, presuming that we uh, behaved ourselves mm. and did as the priesthood told us. And, and so Swinburne think, thought, this, this is where it all went wrong. Mm. Um, and I think he does have a point. Well, let, let's, let's have a reading. He's very, um, Let's have a reading to demonstrate yes. this, but just so people can kind of understand who haven't read the book, how does Elizabeth Finch and Julian the Apostate go together? The structure of the book is that we're with, we've got the Elizabeth Finch story. Uh, Neil decides he's going to write the essay he never wrote at, um, in this class. And then the middle section of the book is Neil's essay about Julian the Apostate. So we have a non-fiction section in the middle, and then we go back to the Elizabeth Finch story in the third part of yes. the book. Yes, and then Elizabeth Finch in the third section, Elizabeth Finch and... Um, during the past days, are sort of drawn closer together, mm. uh, in and and a lot there's a lot about how we remember the dead, but we might get onto that or we might not. Um, but uh, we've got a reading. Um, so this is from Neil's essay, and this is looking at this idea that we're talking about: what if, what if Julian had survived? How things might have been different? For his supporters down the centuries, Julian was that seductive thing, a lost leader. What if he had ruled for another 30 years, marginalising Christianity year by year, and gently, then forcibly, re-cementing the polytheism of Greece and Rome? And what if the policy was pursued by his successors down the centuries? What then? Perhaps no need for a renaissance, since the old Greco-Roman ways would still be intact and the great scholarly libraries undestroyed. Perhaps no need for an enlightenment, because much of it would have already happened. The age-long moral and social distortions imposed by a vastly powerful state religion would have been avoided. By the time the age of reason came round, we would already have been living in it for 14 centuries. And those surviving Christian priests with their peculiar eccentric but harmless beliefs, or rather beliefs made harmless, would rub shoulders on equal terms 
with pagans and druids and spoonbenders and tree worshippers and Jews and Muslims and so on and so on, all under the benign and tolerant protection of whatever European Hellenism developed into. Imagine the last 15 centuries without religious wars, perhaps without religion, religious or even racial intolerance. Imagine science unhindered by religion. Delete all those missionaries forcing belief on indigenous people while accompanying soldiers stole their gold. Imagine the intellectual victory of what most Hellenists believed, that if there was any joy to be had in life, it was in this brief sublunary passage of ours, not in some absurd, disnified heaven after we we're all dead. Yeah. Julian Barnes. It, it sounds wonderful, but uh, I, I suspect probably not realistic. <laughs> well, that's what, that's what Neil says. I really love to discuss this with, with Elizabeth Finch, but alas, she's dead. And so he's, he's, he's speculating, as others have. I mean, one of the things about Julian the Apostate is though he was a short-lived emperor, um, he, his, his, his memory and what he stood for echoed down the centuries. I mean, for the first many centuries he was he was one of the uh, most loathed figures um in christianity in the christian christian mythology he was sort of up there with pontius pilate and and herod people like that he was a famous bad guy and it's interesting why he was a famous bad guy it was because he didn't persecute the christians enough um there's one one christian writer complained of what he called Blanda persecutio, which is a gentle persecution. He didn't kill them. He didn't give them the martyrdom that they desperately wanted. It was awful. He wasn't, he wasn't nasty to them. And therefore, you know, people might think that there was something in uh, this, this, the Greco-Roman um, uh, beliefs that he stood for. Um, and, he go, and then, cut a, a long story short, but it's all in the essay, then round about the 16th century, uh, Europeans especially, uh, French uh, started to reread him and uh, and see the point of him, and he was in the 18th century. He was he was revered by Voltaire and by the British historian Edward Gibbon, and he was seen because he was seen as a symbol of tolerance. And then he goes on to the 19th century, and Ibsen writes an enormous, un unputonable play about him. Um, and, you know, into the 20th century, Gore Vidal writes a no novel about him. He's still there, um, and I hope I make him last a bit longer. This is Best of the Festivals on RN Summer, and we're listening to a conversation between Claire Nichols and the renowned author Julian Barnes from this year's Sydney Writers' Festival. I said I was an atheist at 20 because that's what you, that, that's when you're, you're most combative. And an agnostic at 50 because, you know, we don't know, we, we, we know quite a lot, um, but we don't know enough to know everything. And who knows? I mean, there are various theories about, uh, about it all. And it, one, one of my favourite ones, which was a, a sort of heresy, was that um, it, it's very difficult to understand the world and the religious explanation of it, given the um, the suffering and the unfairness, the injustice, uh, and the, the the pain and the terror that a lot of people experience as life, and the notion that there's some sort of 
God who caused it all or who will explain it all to us after death seems to me very far-fetched. Um, Bertrand Russell was once on a television programme called Face to Face in England. This is back in the 50s. And um, it, was a, it was a television series which was famous because it was the first time the interviewer turned their back on the, ca on the camera. So you just saw the back of the interviewer's head and then you saw Bertrand Russell. And I think it's, I think it's still available on, on the BBC iPlayer, and this interview. And there's a moment when the interviewer puts that question, which is, is often put to um, uh, famous atheists. Um, but Mr. Russell, what if you died and, and, you, and then you woke up? And when you woke up, you saw these sort of big gates made of pearl. And there was a man with a big key there. And he opened them. And then you went in. You went in and there, then uh, you saw this, uh, shall we say, man in a white uh, frock with a, with a big, big white beard. What would you do? And Bertrand Russell, who had a very strange, he was very sort of rather high-pitched, sort of aristocratic English voice. He replied, well, he said, I would say to him, but you didn't give us enough evidence. <laughs> which which, which I, I think is the, is, the, is the perfect reply to God. I mean, when I was talking about um, other heresies, and there's one, one of the heresies was about Deus abscondius, in other words, the absconding God. That's to say, uh, God created the world and he set it running, and then he realized he made a terrible posh of it, but it wasn't working. It was a complete cock up, and so he, he buggers off. So the absconding God. Um, and I think that 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 makes the it makes our understanding of the world and the relationship to possible God. That makes great sense of it. I'm interested to know why someone who was an atheist at twenty, agnostic in fifty at fifty and sixty, spends so much time thinking and writing about religion. Well, I write a lot about other things, but I write a lot about death and I love a lot about love. And um, you know I for, for, for almost the entire history of, um, of the existence of men and women on this planet, they have had a religion of some sort, you know. And you can imagine it did make sense when you were uh, alone um, on a, on a, on a, on a, in a desert with a few, few wild animals to, to catch and eat. And then the sort of the weather must, I mean, we take the weather for granted. The weather must have been so extraordinary. And it was just as the Romans and Greeks, though much more rational, believed very much in um, symbols, in, in signs from heaven. And they would interpret them through you know, diviners. Um, so the, uh, you know, our ancestors out there with the dressed in whatever they were dressed in, if not anything, um, would 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 feel you know what on earth is happening? Where have an, our ancestors gone to? Why are there these all, all this stuff happening in the heavens? And they would come up with an explanation that there was someone who um, invented it and therefore was incredibly powerful and therefore should be um, revered. This is a very short history of theology. <laughs> um, 
And um, I, so, so I, though I, I, I don't believe in God, and indeed I've never been to a regular church service in my life anywhere. Um, you know, I, like most agnostics, I do uh, christenings, marriages, and deaths. I, I, you, you know, you have to, you have to be interested in what everyone else is interested in, and and so, so yes, religion comes into it, and I sort of, it's also you quite like tweaking its tail from time to time. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, I was meant to be doing um, um, an event in Bath Abbey, most beautiful building. Uh, it's arranged by the local Bath bookshop, um, and at the last minute, they say. Oh no, we've we've heard about this book of his, and um, no, he, he can't come here and spread his filthy gospel of of unworship um, in our in our beautiful abbey. So we had we had to reconvene at the bookshop instead. <laughs> and I thought, I thought this is great actually. I said, how many tickets have we sold? And they said, well, only a hundred. I said, well, this is great. We don't have to be in a vast empty abbey, and now we can pride ourselves that we've been chucked out. I, mean, <laughs> I thought uh, my very my first novel, Metroland, in 1980, was banned in South Africa. Well, it would only, it would only have sold about 20 copies anyway. But I thought it was a great great badge of uh, you know virtue. And now, towards the end of my career, I've been banned from Bath Abbey. Um, again, <laughs> on both occasions, little damage was done. Well, we're very happy to have you here at CarriageWorks. Um, in your memoir, a memoir used loosely, Nothing to be Frightened of, you said that you thought about death mm. every day. You wrote that book more than 15 years mm. ago. Is that still true, Julian? Yes, yes, it is still true. I do think about it every day. I mean, uh, for various prompts, you know, uh, I reached the age where a lot of my friends dead. Um, and when, uh, you know, I can't make a promise that I'll come to a Sydney writer's festival in 10 years' time, nice as it would be, though I might be a very doddery figure by then and might not want to be like me anyway. Um, I, yes, I think, I think it's, it, it's, it's now slightly more, slightly less, I feel slightly less terror now. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm accepting of it. I think it's a really bad idea, death. And I want to have nothing to do with it, apart from thinking about it all the time. Um, I think, I think I fear it slightly less because, you know, by the time you get to my age, all sorts of bits of you start going wrong and you, you, you popping down the hospital every other day and that sort of thing. And you think, well, uh, it's sort of what, what I'm, what I'm, what is going to be destroyed now is a sort of semi broken down organism anyway, which, which, you know, the brain and the heart still work, but you know, uh, not arrest very well. Um, so it's I, it's also that thing of familiarising yourself with it. Um, Montaigne, the great French thinker, said you should make a daily companion of death. You should think about it whenever your horse shies or, or a tile falls off a roof, you know? Ah, oh, I could have been dead then when my, my horse just shied or that that roof tile could have hit me on the head. So you have, you sort of, I mean, I can't promise that I'll be uh, aware of it uh, in the right way. I might walk out into the street outside and um, get run down by 
a delivery van. Um, anyway, um, I, no, I mustn't think like that. <laughs> I must be positive about death. <laughs> is, is there a comfort in having this incredible body of work, you know, uh, this contribution you've made that will outlive you, does writing make you immortal in a way? No, no. Writing makes a few people immortal for a few centuries. Um, but uh, the, way, the way that the, 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 the humanity is, 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 is destroying the planet, you know, there may not be any books and be any electricity to power your Kindles and, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I think... Uh, I think we're not also humanity is not very good at cooperating uh, enough at the right times when it's endangered um, so uh, I don't think uh, I, don't, I, I like to think of I like to think of people reading me after my death yes and but then I realized as I wrote about in nothing to be frightened of that you know maybe for another generation or a bit more and then Gradually, my readership will drop off, and then there will be the last person who ever reads one of my books. And I, I thought about this person, uh, and I thought I was beginning to feel sort of rather tender towards him or her. You know, my last reader, my last reader. <laughs> and then, and then I realised, by definition, your last reader is someone who doesn't recommend your books to anyone else. <laughs> Bastard! Bastard. Uh, Julian Barnes, you've been in the writing game for about four decades. Uh, does it get easier? In some ways, uh, because I, 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 I've done, I, you know, you know you ha you ha sometimes the same problem comes up. It doesn't in the sense that... Um, my books are a rather different one from another, and I never know where I'm going next. Um, and so each book throws up new difficulties. Uh, but that's healthy, I think. You know, if you, if, you, if you just knew what you were going to write exactly and didn't have any anxiety and panic in the course of it, it would just be like that game I had as a child called Painting by Numbers, where you had a sort of outline of, of, a, of a picture and... and uh, the paint box and brushes, and you just filled in the colours according to the numbers in the little squares. I don't know if that still exists. Um, and so that would be uninteresting to me. I mean, I go, you can see, I think, behind me, my, my, I'm in my study, and the walls are yellow, bright yellow. Um, and that means that when I walk into my study every morning, I think I'm cheered by it. I think, oh, good, here I am again uh, on my own. And the sun's shining, even when the sun isn't shining, because of my yellow wallpaper. Uh, and I sit down to work with great relish. And I think that's, that's just luck. You know, that's just, just how I am. Um, and there are, some, there are some writers who say I hate the process of writing. And I, to which I think, well, there are quite enough books already, so spare us. <laughs> you, you were speaking earlier you know, back at the start of your career about that, the voice in your head, you know, that slight imposter syndrome. How can I write a book when, you know, I've read Shakespeare? Yes. Is the voice yes. in the head still quite loud, even when you're a booker winner and you're Julian Barnes? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's quite enough. I mean, 
I think some of my books are interesting and some of my books may last. Um, you know, I, d I don't, I don't really ever look at my books as a, as a, as that dreadful French word, an oeuvre, uh, some sort of totality. I only, I only can only write one by forgetting all the other ones I've written. That's how it works. Um, but uh, at least I, at least I, I, I got to write my first book and then I managed to write another one. And then, and then I suppose I was nearly in my forties before I became sort of comfortable in my own skin. And that was partly to do with personal circumstances, but also to do with feeling that I was actually a writer, not just someone who'd written a book. Julian Barnes, it's been such a joy to meet you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your time. From the 2022 Sydney Writers' Festival, we've been listening to the author Julian Barnes in conversation with RN's Claire Nichols. I'm Cassie McCullough, and if you want to hear more about books and writing, then make sure you join Claire Nichols for The Book Show each week on Radio National or via the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.